open our Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We return to our study this morning in Matthew to a portion of Scripture and where we find some very practical exhortations about Christian living. And also there are some very important points of theology here. Often when we speak from the Bible, we study the Bible, we speak in general terms and we can learn some good pointers about Christian living and what to watch out for. We learn how to act and how to speak. We learn how to be a good testimony before others. And that's an essential part of our Christianity because God does expect his people to live in holiness. And the simple pretext for that is God's own character. God said, be holy for I am holy. And if we're real Christians and if we have been saved from our sins and if we have been given this new nature that God gives us which is created in righteousness and holiness, then we have new capabilities. And the new capability that we have is to live for Christ and to be pleasing to him. We didn't have that capability before we came to him. Now, the scriptures teach that every person is indwelt, every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And to put this as simply as I can, since I'm not really going to spend time on that particular aspect of our Christianity today, but to put it simply, it means that the Spirit of Christ comes to live in us when we become a Christian. The Holy Spirit is living in us. He moves into our soul, and it's God's Spirit that shapes our lives and guides us through the process of becoming more like Christ. And if you want a big term for that that we use in church a lot, that is the word sanctification. And it means to become holy as God is holy. And that is a lifelong process that we go through. From the time that you believe in Jesus Christ until the time that you go home to be with him, you are in that process. And then when you die and you reach heaven, then your sanctification is complete. And every Christian, without exception, is involved in that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians are in different stages of it. But there are no Christians that are not in the process of it. And that's because when Christ saved you, when God saved you, he saved you with the intent that you would become like Christ. Not that you would be a God like some people teach, but that you would possess his moral character and that you would emulate the life of Christ with your own. And in order for that change to take place, in effect, in order for you to be saved, there has to be a change of your nature. You're born with a sinful nature and that nature is against God and you have to be given a new nature And it is that new nature that the Holy Spirit works through to bring you into conformity with Christ. Now in the passage that we're reading in Matthew today, Jesus speaks metaphorically about that nature. And he teaches us that one who is absent this holy and righteous character of God, one that does not have the Holy Spirit operating in his life to make him more like Christ, is not really saved. Now, even though that person may claim to be saved, he may claim that he knows God, 
There is no truth to that unless there is evidence in his life proved by holy and righteous living. So we're going to look at these scriptures again. And today I want to expand on this core teaching about man's heart. And I want to take a closer look at the problem that all of us have that has to be corrected before we can have life in Christ. Matthew chapter 12 verse number 33 is where we'll start reading today. Please stand with me in reverence for God's word. Matthew 12, verse number 33. Jesus said, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of preaching your word today and being here among the people of God. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this message today. Open our hearts to truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me remind you once again of the background of these verses. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've gone through this extensively. But this is one of the issues that we face when we take the Word of God and we break it down into smaller sections in order that we can handle it all. Uh, There's this necessity that we have to go back and and see uh, what we've studied before in order that we might see where we are right now. And we do that because there may be people here who haven't heard the first part of this and so they're in the dark as to what I'm talking about. So we're at a place here in Matthew in Jesus' ministry in which he is constantly attacked by the religious leaders because his teachings conflicted with theirs. He taught that people can be right with God only by God's grace and they taught that it was man's work that enabled people to be right with God. Jesus taught that only God can change a sinner's heart while the religious leaders at that time were teaching that the heart actually has nothing at all to do with it, but it's the outward performance that counts. And then on top of that, there was great animosity between the religious leaders and Jesus. They wanted to hold on to their self-righteous religion because that helped them to maintain their leadership roles. If their system falls, then they fall And they were too proud to surrender to the lordship of Christ. But they have a major problem in Jesus' ministry. And that's because he began to attract crowds. And he was gaining a following. And the people started to say, who is going to do more miracles than this? Will the Messiah, when he comes, will he do more than this man has done? And there was no way that they could deny the miracles. His power was supernatural. But they could never admit that it was the power of God because if they did, it meant they would have to admit that he truly was the Messiah. And so you see the dilemma these leaders faced and they were so obstinate in their unbelief that they claimed that Jesus was working by the power of Satan. That when he cast out demons, he cast those out by Satan's power and not by God's power. And Jesus said, that is a false charge. He said, that is blasphemy. He said, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
And he also told them that this was a sin which God would not forgive. Well, as we move into our text, uh, Jesus devised an argument to show how ridiculous that their claims were. They weren't using sound reasoning. And you can read the previous verses to what we've read today, and you'll see how Jesus begins to develop that argument. And in our text, his, his argument continues, and he uses here parabolic language simply means Jesus spoke in a parable. He says in verse number 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit. And that is a parable in which Jesus uses the tree, a tree, to represent the heart. So this is what we looked at last week, that the tree is the heart. And he's telling us here that the heart is responsible for our actions. And the kind of heart that we have is indicated by our activities. So the tree is the heart, and the fruit of the tree is the action that arises out of the heart. And that's a very simple analogy. If the tree is bad, then it produces bad fruit. If it's good, then it produces good fruit. And similarly, if the heart is evil, then it cannot produce good works. And if the heart is good, then it will always produce good works. Well, Jesus asked them to consider that logic. And this this is what he means when he says, make the tree good. Now, it's impossible, of course, to make a tree good. And so when Jesus uses the word make here, he's not using it in the same sense that we would use the word. And so the language might might not be quite clear to us, but he's simply saying to them, consider this proposition. Think about this. They claimed that he was corrupt, and yet the works that he did were good works. And so those two things don't mesh, and so their argument was bogus. And then if you look at verse number 34, Jesus says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I want to speak to you today on verses 33 and 34, and we're going to look at this from a theological perspective. Now, next week, we're going to return to the practical arguments of this passage. And I want you to note that Jesus contrasts his activities with theirs. He knows their hearts. He knows that they have wicked hearts. That's why they lie against him. That's why they accuse him. That's why they blaspheme him. And this is why they have a plot in place to finally murder him. So the activities of their heart showed what they were really like. They claimed to be virtuous. They claimed to be acceptable with God. And yet the condition of their heart was working itself out. And that's why you see them doing all of these evil deeds. They did it because their hearts were evil. So they couldn't speak righteous words. They couldn't give the people any life-giving words because the tree was corrupt. Their heart is corrupt. Bad trees do not produce good fruit. And bad hearts do not produce good works. Well, Jesus, of course, was the opposite of that. He had a heart of holiness, and so he couldn't do anything but good works. Good works always come from God. And since Satan has no good works, then his works could not have have come from Satan. And they simply could not defy that logic. So if Jesus was right, then there was proof that the stock of his tree was good and theirs was evil. Well, that takes us then into the teachings that I want to show you today. Uh, We have this very 
practical application of a much deeper theological principle. And Jesus was able to illustrate this very important doctrine in this way. So today I want to get a little bit more technical with you. Not hard, just a little bit more technical. And I want to talk to you today about the theology of depravity. The theology of depravity. And this is a, one of the foundational important doctrines of Scripture. And if you want to know why we have any other theology, why do we have a Bible, why do we have a Savior? Well, it's because of this all-important salient point. We're discussing the heart of man, and the reason that we need a Savior is because we have a wicked heart, and our heart is incapable of pleasing God. I mentioned that in passing in a lot of different sermons that I preach. I mentioned this doctrine because it goes alongside many other doctrines. But today, we're going to speak specifically about this issue. What does God say about the condition of the human heart? And remember, when we talk about the heart, we're not talking about the physical organ. We're talking here about the reasoning capabilities of man. This is the rational part of man, the thing that causes him to make his decisions. This is the way your activities are determined. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. If you find the second chapter of Ephesians... And while you're turning there, I will remind you that the first chapter of Ephesians is the highest expression of the glory and the purpose of God in this world. And here in the beginning of the second chapter, we find the worst expression of our inability, of our weakness, and our depravity as God's creatures. Now, this is what Paul writes in the beginning of the second chapter of Ephesians. He says, And you hath he quickened. And I hope that you understand that means you hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, in time past, he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. That means our manner of life. Our manner of life in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Most people have no idea of who they really are and what they are. Most of us have very high opinions of ourselves. We think that we're pretty good people. God actually sees us much differently. To him, the best of the best, all of humanity is totally lost, totally depraved, and totally unable to please him. Now, we're talking about a person, of course, before he comes to know Christ as Savior. And the problem here is the problem of man's heart. Now, comparing that to what Jesus says in Matthew, he's telling us that we are all bad trees. All of us are corrupt trees, and we don't have the ability to bear the kinds of fruits of righteousness that God requires from every person. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses this natural condition of man, of every person, by first of all showing us here that every person is dead in sins. Every person is dead in sins. Now, you might not think that you're dead. You can pinch yourself and have the person next to you check up on you, slap you on the back of the head, and I'm quite sure that you will respond. But Paul 
is not talking about that. You are physically alive, but Paul's not talking about physical life here. He's speaking of your spiritual condition, not your physical condition. And what the Bible shows us here, that spiritually, before a person comes to know Christ, he's not sick. He's not weak. He's not holding on, hoping to recover. The Bible says that you are spiritually dead. And it means that there is no spiritual life in you. You have no relationship with God. You're like a dead man walking. And you have no more ability to reach up to God, to take hold on God, to please God, than a dead corpse lying in a cold, dark tomb. And that's what we speak of when we speak of the condition of depravity. And when the Bible speaks of depravity, it uses the word dead to describe it. There is no life in us. Just like a, a dead corpse, every organ in a dead corpse is non-functional. There is no heartbeat, there is no breath in the lungs, there is no digestion in the stomach, there is no filtration in the kidneys. Every part of a dead corpse is dead. All of it is non-functioning. And this is how the Bible describes us spiritually. There are no functional spiritual parts in man. Our minds are depraved, our will is depraved, our actions are depraved. Everything about us is spiritually dead. And further, the Bible says that we are born that way. And there wasn't a time when we weren't spiritually dead. Every person is born in the same way, spiritually dead. Is that clear? Every person is born this way, dead, dead, dead. We're spiritually dead. And you need to get that into your mind because the spiritually dead are unable to do anything that pleases God. Now, just like Jesus says in Matthew 12, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this means that those, that spiritual deadness will show up in evil activities. And if you'll look again at verse number 3 in Ephesians 2, the scripture says, among whom also we all had our conversation, or all had our manner of life in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So that evil condition works its way out in the way that we live our lives. We live in the lust of the flesh. What we want to do is to fulfill the desires of our flesh. And so that means that there is no person that has a desire for God. And it's a simple deduction that the works of the flesh are opposite of the works of God. And so if our desire is toward the things of the flesh, it means we have no desire towards God. We're not turned towards God and neither do we seek God. Romans says, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, as you can see, if you've visited many other churches, you'll find that we are not where most churches are theologically. I was listening to the man who is the most popular preacher in America, and listening to him, you would never know that any of us ever had a problem. He said that he didn't want to speak about this issue, that he didn't want to talk about sin. He said people feel badly enough already, and he sure didn't want to tell them they're spiritually dead. Instead, he prefers to give a positive message. And I think it's kind of hard to give a positive message to a corpse. I mean, what do you tell a corpse? Well, being dead's not really all that bad. I mean, there's lots of things that are worse than being dead. Well, how does anybody receive a positive message when they don't have spiritual capability to do it? 
We, we, who's going to receive a positive message if they don't have a desire to God? Now, I agree, a desire for God. I agree that this man can preach motivational messages. I agree that he can stimulate people to strive for success in their life on whatever avenues that they choose or what they desire. But I deny that that has anything at all to do with a man's spiritual condition and being right with God. And so our belief, our theology, our goal is the same as God's goal, and that's to make people understand why do you need Christ as the Savior? You simply cannot get to God by doing good things. You can't get to him by having more self-esteem. You can't do it by reciting feel-good messages. The problem is the heart. And if the heart is wrong and the heart is corrupt, you cannot get right with God until there's something that takes place in your heart. And that's the problem with the Pharisees. They they were geared for success in their system. They had the rituals and the regulations. It looked like they were following God. They said they were. Many people thought they were. But they had this deep, nagging problem that the best that they could do was not good enough for God, and the reason is their hearts are not right. And that's not peculiar to them. That's the place that every person is in. Their self-righteous desire was a desire for self, of course, and not for God. And I would submit to you, when you hear this preaching about health, wealth, and prosperity, and people telling, preaching, uh, and telling people that if you just do this, if you believe in God, you'll get rich, you'll be healthy, everything good will happen to you, and and they preach a self-esteem gospel, where is that centered? It's still centered in self. That is not a desire for God. And it flows right back into what Paul says here. We fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and those desires are not for God. Now, some people think that, that, that it is. They think that these desires are desires for God, and that only proves the next point that I'd like to make, and that is no one is able to discern spiritual matters. No one can discern spiritual matters. See, people don't have a clue what God is saying and what God requires and where they stand with God because they don't understand the spiritual world. It's like this. In this room, there are all kinds of radio waves and television waves that are passing through this space. If you have a smartphone and you have the password, there is a wireless networking signal that's going through this room right now and you can capture that signal. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the password is because some of you would be listening to ESPN and CBS Sports while I'm trying to preach this message. And by the way, if you're already doing that, don't tell me the score of the game. When I get home, I'm going to watch Kentucky win, so don't tell me what the score is. But those waves, those waves are passing through this building right now, and if you have the proper kind of receptor, you can capture that wave. But there's no way that you can make sense of that or even know that it exists unless you have the right kind of receiver. You have to have a radio, you have to have a TV, you have to have that smartphone, or else you are oblivious to all of this that's going through this room. And that's the way that God says that people are in the spiritual world, that they do not have the receptor to receive God's signal. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So you don't look for God. You don't care about God. You don't have a desire for him. You can't even listen to him. 
unless he makes you aware that he's here and he gives you this spiritual receptor that you need. And what is that receptor? It's a heart that's been changed by God. The receptor is a heart that has been changed and when your heart is changed, then you can receive that signal. Now I want you to hold on to that thought because I'm going to come back to that in the end of the message. So we have these problems in the spiritual world. We are dead in sins. We have no desire for God. We cannot discern God's voice even if we could hear it. We don't understand it because our receptor is like an old telegraph that's trying to receive some kind of signal, some kind of message from astronauts on the moon. It's a mismatch and it just doesn't work. So we have all of these things that are going against us and that is what is taught by the theology of depravity. But there's another, there's another important piece of this that we can't miss and this is a really important point of why we need a savior. We are in this terrible condition and as a result of that, everyone is doomed in sin. You need to understand that everyone is doomed in sin. We're not in a neutral position. We're not in a static condition. You see, you need Christ because you're not sitting still. You're on the move. There's a reason that you need Christ, and it's because you are doomed in your sins. Now we return to Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll see at the end of verse number 3 that because of that spiritual deadness, the scripture says, we were by nature the children of wrath. Is that true? Is it true that we're under God's wrath? Isn't God neutral towards us and we're neutral towards him? No, there's no neutrality either way. We are living against the will of God. And so do you think that God is going to be neutral towards us? Let me give you a couple of verses that are out of the Gospel of John. And I want you to notice that the first one comes from the lips of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In John three eighteen, Jesus said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so there you see condemnation. That's not positive. That's not neutral. Condemnation is the result of our sinful condition. And then John goes on in verse number 36 of this same chapter, and he says, He that believeth on the Son, that is on Jesus Christ, hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But listen, the wrath of God abideth on him. So the scripture says that we are the subject of God's wrath. And if we're going to stick to the teachings of our Savior on this, if we're going to listen to what Jesus says, we'll find that he gives us more explanation of what that wrath of God means than any other writer, any other person, any other speaker of scripture. Let me give you just a couple of these, and these are representative of plenty more. One of them is just two chapters before where we read in Matthew a moment ago. Matthew ten twenty eight. Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The second scripture is a practical demonstration of what we just read. 
And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And in Luke 16, Jesus tells this story. He says, And it came to pass that the beggar died, that's Lazarus, and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, that means heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now there Jesus is telling us what it means to experience the wrath of God. This is what it means when he says that you are condemned. And according to scripture, every person that's born into this world is in this dead spiritual condition. Every person is against God, every person is a sinner, and every person is doomed because of those sins. That is a bleak picture, isn't it? A very bleak picture. We are dead spiritually. We have no desire for God. We cannot discern God's voice when he speaks. We are doomed to suffer eternally. And that is the depressing message that most churches do not want to tell you about. They don't want to speak about this because it's such a downer. Who wants to go to church where they talk about things like this? Who wants to go to church where the church or the preacher tells me who I am and what the Bible says about me when I have such high opinions of myself? I'm much better than this. But do you know what makes the good news of the gospel so good? It's the bad news. It's the bad news that makes it so good because without knowing the bad, you would never know what Jesus came to save you from. He came to save you from hell and God's wrath. Now, hell is a terrible subject. Hell is a terrible subject. But do you know this? Christians like to hear about it. And you know why? Because it makes the gospel of Christ so much sweeter to us. Now, I don't want to leave you writhing in this information that I've given you because there is still one more piece of the theology of depravity. And all of this is contained within the theology of salvation. And this last piece is this. Everyone can be delivered from God's wrath. Everyone can be delivered from God's wrath. Now the scripture says we are the children of wrath. We are born that way. And if not for this, we would all die that way. But the good news is we don't have to die that way. We can be saved from God's wrath. Now let me take you back to the part that I said you need to hold on to. The heart is the problem here. The heart is the root of this issue. And and we cannot change our own hearts. We can't do it. It's impossible for you to change your heart. And none of us even wants to. Not unless God speaks to us and causes us to understand this. You see, our heart as it is, is the wrong receptor. But thank God for this, that the Holy Spirit is the Marconi that got us from the telegraph to a whole different way of reception. See, the Holy Spirit comes and he changes the heart and he makes it ready to receive the message of Jesus Christ. What God does is to make a new heart for you. It's a heart that's been recreated so that it can tune in to this spiritual message. And when God works in us, that receptor is changed, and that's when you're ready to dial into the truth of what Jesus did for you to save you from your sins. Do you know how that's done? 
If you do, please tell me because I don't know. I, I don't know how God does this. I don't understand how God does this, but I know that he's able to do it. I know that the Holy Spirit works down deep beneath our consciousness and makes this new heart. And the only way that we're aware that we have been changed is that suddenly everything I'm saying to you begins to make sense. There's a new desire. Now you do want this. You do want God when you didn't want him before. And so instantaneously, you're no longer pleased with the life that you lived before. You realize there is something desperately wrong with you. You realize that you're helpless in the way that you are. And in that instant, when God shows you this, then you begin to realize that the only way to correct all of these impossible problems that I've spoken of you to you today is to have it cured by repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And what Christ does, he saves you from those sins and he saves you from the wrath of God. You didn't do it. You didn't desire it. You didn't want it. You didn't even know that you needed it. It was God that did this. And that's why our salvation is so good. That's why God is so good because he's the one that comes to us and lifts us out of that blackness of a cold, dead heart and he revives us so we can hear this message and believe. Fanny J. Crosby, the hymn writer, was blinded for life when she was just two years old and she expressed what I've just told you today in a hymn. She wrote this, Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, wakened by kindness, cords that are broken will vibrate once more. Do you understand? She's talking there about the grace of God. Salvation is by God's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Now do you see what Jesus says in Matthew 12? Either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Your heart has to be changed. The only way the tree can be made good is for God to do it for you. Now perhaps there's someone here today and God has opened up your heart to this message. Perhaps God is working in you right now. And deep down inside, you feel the Spirit of God at work. You can tell that there's construction going on. God is making that new heart, and now you begin to desire him. And you may want to know, well, how is it then that I can be relieved from the wrath of God? How can my sins be taken away? How can I be changed? How can I be forgiven? How can it be that the wrath of God is no longer on me? How can I come into favor with God? And here it is. It's a very simple message. Trust Christ. Repent of your sins and trust Christ. Trust him alone. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an invitation that Jesus gives to come to him to have life. He changes the heart and if you feel that operation the thing to do is to receive Christ now if you never thought about theology any time in your life before think about it now because this theology will affect your life forever maybe you didn't see it before but you do now 
And if you do, don't wait another day. Don't hesitate another minute. The hymn continues that Fanny J. Crosby wrote. She said, Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. And that's what the good news of the gospel is. Your heart is wicked. Your tree is corrupt. But Jesus can heal a broken heart. He's the one that can make the tree good. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart today. If you don't know him, then I hope that you will trust him. Believe in him today. And you'll no longer be under the wrath of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And once again, we're so thankful that we can open up your word and see these precious promises that you have given. We understand that we don't deserve this. There's nothing good that we have done. There's nothing that we can bring to you and offer you because we're dead in our sins and we can't do anything to please you. We thank you, Lord, that you have this offer of grace and and that you extend that to us and you change our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that there's anyone here today that, that feels the calling of the Holy Spirit, that feels the, the work of the Holy Spirit going on deep in their soul at this moment, that they will surrender their all to you, that they will come to you and just understand that you're the only one that can help them. Lord, speak to someone today. And all of us that are Christians that have believed, may we keep this in mind. May we be reminded all the time that there are people living around us that don't know this message. They have no idea many times what we're even talking about. They don't care about it. And so, Lord, help us to give that message to them so they will know about it and that they will believe. Lord, work in hearts today, and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.